part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we are in overtime. That's right, the second half of the program. Really looking forward to talking to y'all today. Um, lots of good stuff. <coughs> lots of good stuff to talk about. So I don't know. Uh, so much to talk about. I don't know what I want to talk about first. Let's uh, let's just go with let's go with um, Joe Rogan. I think that'll be a that'll be an easy one to talk about. And so um, everybody knows Joe Rogan, uh, podcaster. Spotify gave him a hundred million dollars to do his podcast. Did you know that that's how much the deal was? Hundred wow. million dollars. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And so, uh, this is actually from a podcast a while ago, but uh, uh, this clip came across my feed somehow, and um, and and I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, I, I, there were some interesting implications from it and so I, I wanted to uh, I'll just play this for you and then we'll and then we'll talk about um, we'll talk about some of the some of the things that I took from it like if we outsource all the things that we're guilty about does it leave at our border like I'm never t- it never leaves yeah. you have a phone that's made by slaves but do you feel guilty about it yes you do yeah for sure if there was a company that came along that was like if Samsung said hey we're gonna make all of our phone cruelty free. Cruelty free. Yeah. We're gonna get all of our cobalt from this place that where we can ensure you that there's nothing there and yeah. and no uh, Chinese factory workers making you know 16 cents a day or whatever the fuck they make. Yeah, it's not. If yeah, if there, if there was a phone that was made in America that cost twice as much, I'd buy it in a fucking heartbeat. But there isn't. There isn't. Uh, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> talking about how he would spend twice as much money on a phone, and phones are like expensive now. They're like a thousand dollars, a thousand dollars for a phone, and so he would spend twice that uh, if he could get a phone that was that was made, um, you know, with good working conditions. And 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 in a different part of the clip, he said something about union wages, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that's that's fine. That's good of him um, if that's true. Um, and and so since he's like a, a public figure and and a lot of times public figures, people who have podcasts, a lot of times they have merch. We have merch. Um, and one of the easiest things that you can do um, if you do actually want to have product, because because it is true that. As far as I can tell, you know, uh, a smartphone 
you know, made with people who have uh, made by people who have union wages and good health care and benefits and all that. That is like difficult to find. I can't think of anything like that off the top of my head. I'm not aware of that. I think they're all, you know, the, the conditions of the people who make the smartphones are like generally, I think, widely accepted to be not good. I think slave is probably hyperbolic, but, you know, nevertheless. Uh, if you have merch, however, there is a really easy way to kind of put those values into action, and that is by having USA union-made merchandise. That's what we do. All of our merchandise is union-made, uh, made in America um, by union workers. Uh, and so with that, with them being union-made and the bug on the shirts, you know that, hey, these people, like, they were taken care of. They did have good wages. Uh, they did have, you know, health insurance. They had a say in the uh, in their working conditions, in their contract, right? So that is a really good way to do that. And actually, you know, union-made merchandise is, you know, not that much more than non-union-made merchandise uh, if you compare similar quality. Right. If you compare similar quality, the union made stuff is like not that much different than the non-union made stuff. It's maybe a little bit more expensive, but not by a lot. And so so that's what we do. Uh, we have all of our stuff union made. And that would be an easy thing for somebody in his position to do. And so, you know, I looked on the website. I said, oh, that's, you know, how nice of him. He would spend two thousand dollars on a smartphone if he could get a smartphone made by people, by union members. Uh, let's see, JoeRogan.com. Uh, let's go to his merch shop. Does he have union-made merchandise? And um, Adam, uh, what do you think? What do you think I found? Hmm, I, I'm going to guess you didn't really see anything there about union-made or, um, you know, I, I'm skeptical if you even found anything about being made in America. That is correct. That is correct. I went through several of his shirts, um, and I didn't even see a single one that even mentioned being made in America, much less being union made. Now, if you if I want to be extremely charitable, it is true that um I also didn't see any information about, you know, where it was made or whatever, but right. but I have found I'm sure if you were to purchase the products. <laughs> yeah, if I were to purchase then I would see that it for was for the union low made low America, price yeah. that is um, being advertised, yeah. you could you could purchase the products and and get, you know, a, a damn right. fine guarantee. But uh aside from that, you would think you would advertise it. Yes, and that so. is that is what I have found is that actually, if your stuff is made in America and if it is union made, then you advertise that. I have in fact never had a product uh, that I bought uh, that did not advertise that they were union made and be pleasantly surprised with a union made product. That has in fact never happened to me in my entire life as a consumer. Uh, so you know. Not to say that it could never happen, uh, just that it has never happened so far. So, um, so yeah, pretty lame, 
Pretty lame from Joe Rogan there, uh, not having, pre presumably, not having union-made merchandise. It's such an easy thing to do. I mean, really so easy. His shirts sell for 30 bucks a pop, and they're not, and, and, and they don't even say they're union-made. So they're, almost certainly, these are like made in Bangladesh or Vietnam or something like that, and he got them for like $5 a pop, and he's selling them for 30 bucks. We sell our shirts for $32 and uh, they're union made and we buy them, uh, you know, uh, we don't, we're not able to buy them in the bulk that he is presumably able to buy them in. Uh, and so our prices, like we do not make that much money on the shirts that we sell. We make like maybe $5 per shirt. <laughs> we spend like $25 on a shirt. Um, and so uh, that we spend that much. So, you know, if we can do that, I think he could, uh, but he doesn't. So there you go, pretty lame. Uh, I do also want to say though that as Derek Guy writes in the nation, Made in America is not actually necessarily, uh, it does not mean more ethical, um, unfortunately. Uh, and in his article, uh, Made in America Never Meant More Ethical, he details some really, really heinous working conditions that garment workers in America have, including um, in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, people making $300 a week to work six days a week, 12 hours a day for $300. That is insane. And that's in America, right? And so having it union made is really the only way to, to you know, made in America doesn't really mean all that much. Ma uh, union made is the thing that means something. Um, so don't be t too impressed when you see made in America. But nevertheless, uh, figured I would pass that on to y'all because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's easy to to just talk about it. It's a lot harder to actually be about it. Right. That's true. Easy to talk the talk, less easy to walk the walk. All right. Uh so is Dave in the Zoom? Not yet, no. Okay. That's fine. Um no big deal. Uh, appreciate everybody tuning in. We've got uh, 30 something people watching the show and uh, 33 people have liked the stream. So if you haven't liked nice. the stream, Please do. Um, appreciate everybody tuning in. We've got some more people that have um, filed in here. We have Andrew, uh, Quirky Geek Girl. Uh, we've got Adam S. and Scott. Uh, yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, and hope you enjoy the rest of the program. If you're listening to us as a podcast, um, like, uh, uh, give us a five star rating on the podcast app. I think that yeah. presumably helps. We've it, got it does, yeah, twenty six five star ratings on Spotify. Um, so here's a challenge to the people who listen to us on Spotify. Uh, let's get that up to thirty this week. How about that? How about four more people on Spotify give us a five star rating? Yeah, we can have we can handle that. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable goal. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, and and one thing uh, that I saw in the comments was um, 
was about the education stuff and about the most minute infraction could get you kicked out of some of these charter mm. schools. And, and yeah. yeah, that definitely speaks to what we were talking about earlier right? Uh, with school privatization and how sometimes these private schools and charter schools self-select their students. Um, there was a, a, a guy I wanted to shout out to the audience, uh, Josh Cowan who is a researcher of school vouchers. And he started out as a pro-voucher gentleman, uh, but has since uh, seen the light, uh, mostly because he has done the research uh, personally. Huh. And so um, he had a good opinion piece in the Hetchinger Report uh, some time back. Uh, it's called, After Two Decades of Studying Voucher Programs, I'm Now Firmly Opposed to Them. Here's why public money should not be funding private tuition. Uh, and so definitely uh, recommend folks check that out. Um, it's always, you know, it's one thing to hear from, you know, public school advocates, I guess. But when you hear from someone who actually was on the other side right. and um, and at least at one point, you know, bought into this. Right. Um, you know, and they'll. Yeah, I think that can be convincing. Uh, Diane Ravitch is another one who was kind of like that. She mm. worked for the Bush administration uh, during No Child yeah. Left Behind and then uh, went on to become a, a much more progressive person and, um, you know, an advocate for defending public schools against privatization. Yeah. Uh, and I do think we have, uh, I think we got Dave coming in, the Zoom. All right. Fantastic. So... <clears throat> Dave Can is the National Organizing Director for the American Federation of Government Employees. AFGE is the largest federal employees union representing some 700,000 uh, federal workers across the country. Um, that, is, uh, that is my union. Uh, Local 1858 represents some uh, seven or eight or nine, 10,000 workers here on the arsenal. Uh, Redstone Arsenal. Uh, so lots of uh, lots of responsibilities. And uh, as the national organizing director, he has been doing a great job. And I'm looking forward to talking about some of those uh, results with y'all. Uh, Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. So uh, let's give us an overview of the results of, of what we saw in 2023 as far as uh, organizing is concerned in AFGE. Yeah, thanks. It's it's been um, tremendous. Uh, we have shown a rate of growth that we haven't seen in in over a decade. Um, and what we're seeing is the organizing success, success of which we've had, which has been a growth rate of uh, over five percent in the past year, um, has been a combination of new unit organizing, where we're taking new folks into the the AFG family, and a lot of internal organizing. And what's exciting about that internal organizing is we're taking the model that we've traditionally used for new unit organizing, which lends itself to building power and giving folks a voice and getting people involved with the sense of ownership of their union, and using that for our internal internal work. Um, so not only have we shown growth, but we've shown an increase in strength as a result of bringing people in and helping them understand that when they join the union, it's an opportunity for them to have a voice. It's not an opportunity just to have representation. It's not an opportunity just to get good service, but it's an opportunity to take ownership of the workplace and have a voice on the job. Um, as a result of that, we've had great retention. Um, we've had good engagement and we've had a number of significant wins across the Federation that I think owe to the fact that people are stepping up to plate and, and mobilizing more than they had in the past. So it's, it's been, it's been tremendous. And, and um, one of the things that's worth saying about 
the sort of uh, bottom-up approach is none of the credit rests with me. It all rests with the locals, the council, the districts, the talented staff we have um, that are out there doing the work. Um, I get I get the, uh, the 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 fortunate position of being a cheerleader to seven hundred and fifty thousand people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it's a uh, it's definitely uh, uh, nice when you know. Uh, uh, folks are taking the initiative and, and, and you're in a supporting role as opposed to having a, having to prod folks along. I, I imagine that makes it a lot easier. Can you talk to us about the difference between the, uh, you know, the, the, the organizing model and, and the, the, you know, organizing for power rather than, uh, I have an insurance card in my pocket. Right. Because you, you mentioned yep. you, you mentioned that about, you know, uh, not seeing the union as a service. And I think I heard you you talk about how that's been, uh, you know, uh, people have have pitched union membership uh, in the past uh, and in, in several unions and including in AFGE like uh, like fire insurance. Uh, to new members, uh, and and you know, I, I think I heard you talking about that on uh, America's Workforce with uh, with Flash, and and I thought that was um, th- that that was really important. Can you talk to us about how you see those two models and and why you know one is is superior? Yeah, and thank thank you for asking that. I, th- I think that really comes down to the heart of the change. Um, AFGE before before the pandemic and before the Trump executive orders, which aimed to drive a spear into the heart of the federal workforce and make it so that folks could be organized. We had 27 years worth of growth. Um, and that was a mix of different organizing methods, which included the service model, which I think wound up becoming the go-to. Um, what that that pitch winds up being is uh, reaching out to folks and saying, listen, you wouldn't get into your car without driver's insurance. It's not allowed. Um, you wouldn't uh, go to you know, go go about your life without health insurance because you never know which, when you're going to need it. And it would be irresponsible not to have um, job insurance, which ultimately is what being a member of the union is, um, or the argument we used to make. Um, and in so doing, we'd get people to join often. Um, we also have tremendous benefits, um, life insurance, uh, you know, discounts on tires, stuff like that. And while that's a great sweetener and a, one of the benefits of joining, and and, and certainly nothing to nothing to to malign, we were using that to recruit folks to a lot. Um, and as a result, what ended up happening was people's understanding of what it meant to be a union member was hobbled. It was restricted by their understanding of the fact that they paid uh, a fee to AFG and as a result would get a service from it. They didn't think of themselves being active participants. Um, you know, I've got a motorcycle. If my motorcycle insurer were to call and say, hey, Dave, we need you to come to a rally um, on Saturday, I said, I think you've misunderstood the nature of our relationship. Um, and so that's what was happening before. Um, so now when we ask people to join, we we say, you know, we we have, and this this is, uh, this goes back to Jane McLevin when she she talks about no shortcuts um, and inducing people or, 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 or trying to, trying to recruit people based on selling a service. There is a shortcut there, but, but, but it's, it, it's easier, I'd say in some ways, but it, it, it winds up costing them and the organization in the long run. If you wind up having a one-on-one conversation with every bargaining unit employee and saying, you know, tell me about your job. And it's better, by the way, it's always going to be better when it's a coworker. It's always going to be better when it's a trusted activist or leader in the workplace. Because, um, you know, while, while I've dedicated, dedicated my career and life to, to the labor movement, I'm not a federal employee. And I don't work in a DOD warehouse or a VA hospital or um, on the border with the Border Patrol agents or working the gate with the TSA folks or uh, in any of the field offices with SSA. So while I I can have a, a, an acute understanding of this based on the thousands of conversations I've had with federal workers, 
it's always going to mean more coming from a coworker. So you sit down and you say, you know, we, we do this work. Tell me about what it's like. Tell me about your experience. How long have you been here? Have things gotten better or worse? Um, if you had a magic wand, what would you change? You know, what's, what's, you know, tell me a little bit about what's not working. And as they do say, you know, does management know about this? Do they care? Have they done anything to fix it? You know, um, how did that affect you? How did that affect your family? Um, and as you, you find the issue that people care about, you agitate around it, you, you help them. Because I think it's hard, it's hard for people, people have, have things that, are, that, that upset them about work, to walk around all day with that at top of mind. Um, that's, not, that's, not, you, that's not livable. So people push it down, they sublimate it. And so a big part of the organizing conversation is to take out that thing that, that people are, are, are unhappy about. And walking around, uh, you know, they get a case of the, the you know, the, the Sunday scaries, a colleague of mine calls it, where they don't go on to work out. Obviously, our people work seven days a week, many of them, or don't don't get weekends often, and that's the work we do. Uh, but, but you know, and, and, and helping people understand that they don't need to, to live with that discontent, polishing off the, the, the concern, the agitation part, and showing it to them, say, you know, you just told me this thing bothered you. If we, as we end this conversation, you have a choice. You're making a choice either way. You're deciding to, to abide by it to live with it, to ignore it, to not address it, or you can have a voice on the job and you can be a part of resolving it because, you know, your boss knows about this or they don't because they haven't asked, but there, there's only one way to address it. There's only one group of people looking out for federal employees, the federal employees. There's 750,000 of us standing shoulder to shoulder. Um, and I'm going to be honest, you know, even if we hear from a million other people, nobody else has the same experience you do. Um, nobody else is going to, uh, you know, have your voice and, and, your 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 power and the opportunity to speak up in the way that you can, and hopefully at the end the end of this conversation, you're willing to you know get get more involved, and then a series of one on one conversations after that, um, getting people involved in baby steps. Um, and there there's a science to to, to how, you, how how you build people up, um, which you know as as we've rolled out this program, we're trying to teach to local leaders because again, um, an organizer is always trying to work themselves out of a job. Um, we, 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 you if if the, the fact of the matter is 30 organizers and 931 locals in AFGE, we can't be in every place, even if we wanted to. But at the end of the day, the power should reside with the locals and the members. So we want to be we want to be building the 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 infrastructure and the power within each place so that we can we can you know, we can be there to support and we always will. But but, you know, that they're the ones that are driving, that they're the ones that have the power. They're the ones that understand the mechanisms they need to to build their union and to have a voice and address the issues. And so. And so using that 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 one-on-one conversation is the crux of the term and having what being a member means be based around those one-on-one conversations winds up being really significant. One other thing I would add, if you don't mind, um, is when we talk about service model work, what we're doing is we're doing something called third-partying the union, um, which I'm sure, Jacob, you've heard about. Um, but it, it's something that, that, that in the private sector, when you start an organizing campaign, um, the agency will hire union busters. They call them union avoidance people. And they'll have things called clo- uh, captive audience meetings. Well, they'll close the door and say, you've got to come to this meeting. So if you're organizing a Toyota plant or a uh, you know a, an Amazon warehouse or a grocery store or factory, they say, you've, you've got to come into you know, this this big management office. It's a mandatory meeting. If you don't show up, you'll, you know, it's, uh, you'll be, be fired for insubordination. Um, and then they bring in a, you know, a $1,500 an hour lawyer from uh, Jackson Lewis or, or, or something somewhere like that to talk about how you shouldn't join the union. And the FLCA has done a lot of research about what it is that scares people off. Um, I think the third most effective thing is they talk about acrimony. They say, you know, things might not have been perfect, but you can feel the tension here. 
can feel how uncomfortable it is. You know, that's all because that's what happens when you get a union. Um, and obviously, a part of their 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 effort is to make things as tense as possible. Um, they're trying to scare them away. Um, I think the second is talking about, uh, uh, you know, um, how unions are, are 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 corrupt and run by the mob and stuff like that, which I you know was 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 not. Not 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 a fable that used to be a problem in in certain sectors over time, but um, I'm, you know we're 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 men of the world and, and men and women and and sim union siblings of the world in 2024. We know that's not the case anymore. Uh, but the first most effective thing is third partying the union. But they say, listen, if you need to leave early to you know go take your kid to a soccer game or go to a doctor's appointment, you can always come to my office and ask. Um, you know, you and you can always if you need a raise, you can always come to me. But if you get a union, then I can't say yes to you as your boss. Um, you know, I need to talk to some union boss who, who who will will say yes or no, and we don't want to bring a third party into our relationship. And that's the most effective way to deter people, to keep people from getting involved in unions. So here's what's crazy: when we use the service model, we're saying you pay me the union, or us the union, or them the union to represent you, and you're not involved. We're saving the employer fifteen hundred dollars an hour by third partying ourselves. And so not only are people never going to get involved, but it's it's the main thing that drives people away. Um, so not only are we, you know, doing the service to the members of giving them a voice and getting them involved and handing them the reins of their union by having an organizing model um, that, that, that 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 puts their their issues and their control front and center. But we're not driving them away in the way that we would with the service model uh, based on based on what the research shows. When you talk about, you know, uh, these one-on-one -on -one conversations and 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 building people up, you know, I think that's really important. Building building people's confidence in, in the actions that they're taking and and all of this. Um, what would you recommend uh, for some of the first steps to uh, uh, you know some of the first homework assignments that you give to people that that you know you've had a couple of one-on-ones with them and and they say okay yeah you know. You know, all right, Jake. You know, you've you've convinced me. I think I think the union seems seems like it's fine. Uh, I'm I'm willing to join. I you know, paying my dues now. Um, you know, you said you said you know, I'm the union. I need to get involved. What does that mean? What are some of the first things you can give to new members to get them involved? That's a wonderful question. Um, and the answer to that is always going to be super personalized. Um, and I mean that in two ways. Um, the first one is. The thing that is animating to the person, the issue that they care about, or the issue that they care about are specific. Um, so you're going to want to try to see if you can get that person involved to, to address the thing that they care about. And then when you're going back to them and having conversations with them, being able to draw on that if you reach if you if 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 they show reticence or reluctance to get involved, um, that's commonly going to happen. You know, it's going to be like you know I, I can't right now. I've got a I've got a bowling league. It's like you know, absolutely. But you know, last time we talked, you talked about you know how important it was for you to see uh, fair staffing and how that impacts in your family. We talked about making sure that we resolve that. Here's, here's, you know, we need to do that now. Um, the second thing is everybody's going to be involved in different things. Um, as you as you have conversations with folks and get to know them, and they get to know themselves in a union context, they're going to give hints and inclinations about the things that they're most interested in doing. So some people love social media; they might want to get involved with um, helping do communications for the local. Um, some people like to fight; they might be interested in doing uh, grievance and arbitration and, and steward work. Some people um, are are sort of natural leaders in the workplace. You know, they run the fantasy football group or a prayer circle or, um, you know, a, a hunting club. Um, and and they might might naturally fall into organizing because they understand people's relationships and people confide in them and trust them. And they have the opportunity to 
unlock in people a willingness to get involved and 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 share themselves and their efforts with their coworkers. Um, but but in regards to those specific actions, as you do escalating direct actions, I always think of uh, it's not just a staircase that goes up because there's two axes. There's two things that are involved in in taking action that people need to be built built up to. One is how much effort it is. So that's so let's say that's our our, our, our the, the bottom axis axis of it. Um, because people aren't necessarily going to say, I'm going to sign up to be on the negotiating team and spend, you know, four or five hours a day for the next six months or longer, you know, uh, working on, on on this effort. Um, but the other is how public it is. Um, people aren't necessarily going to be willing to go on Front Street and shout in their boss's face on the first day. Um, so a lot of times when we ask people to get involved, we'll say, you know, will you come to a rally? Well, that's not necessarily a ton of effort, but that's a ton of exposure. That's a ton of his building. And so that's pretty high up the ladder in other ways. So you're going to want to ask people sort of small, trackable things that they can they can feel good about and have a victory and build off of. So, you know, um, you know, we're having a meeting on Monday. Can you come? Um, we're having a meeting on Tuesday. Can you bring somebody? Um, you know, we're all uh, we're all um, going to wear a sticker. Uh, why don't why? And, you know, I'm saying, you know, why, why, why don't you come into the lunchroom with me and I'll put mine on. You can put yours on after um, and we'll do it together. And that'll, that'll let other people know that this is something we're in together. Um, and, you know, building up the steps as you go, um, you know, having a petition and giving somebody a petition that you and so, you and some of the other local leaders have already signed so that they know they're not alone. Um, and then building up as you go, the visibility that the person has and the work that they're willing to do. And then again, if you can try to get people into different lanes where they're doing the sort of work they like, that means that they're more likely to get involved. They're going to get more out of it. They're going to be better at it. And you're not going to face the level of burnout that we do with activists a lot of times. Um, because if people are doing too much, and it's not uncommon for me to talk to a local president or a steward who says, you know, I'm doing 10 jobs. Yeah, it's too much. Your 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 life in the union is going to be diminished and shortened by by uh, doing too much and not getting other people to to do the work with you. And you're depriving them of the opportunity to to have a piece of the the local. So you're not doing anybody a favor that way. Right. And that and that goes back to you mentioned about organizing yourself out of a job, right? I mean, that is <clears throat> that that is so important for the person doing the organizing because it's so easy to just take on so much work that you do burn yourself out and right. you do and, and and you make it such that you're not enjoying yourself anymore that that you're overwhelmed uh and then the quality of your work can begin to suffer for right. the union right and you're, you 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 know if you do too much you can't do a good job and then you're also you know you're you're uh, 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 corralling all of the institutional knowledge in one or two bodies, and 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 then what happens when you're gone, right? When you know, because you can't, you 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 just can't be the the guy forever. You know, I mean, you got to retire. You got, or you know, God forbid, you know, something happens and you die suddenly. You know, what's yeah. the un what's the union going to do if you die in a car crash tomorrow? Uh, what is your agency going to do if you die in a car crash tomorrow? You know, like you need to. I think it, it, it's important for leaders to be thinking about that um, and, and make sure that that actually, you know, as far as it would be sad, you know, for for the people that know me and, and you know, that would, I hope people would be sad. right? But but ideally, the sure. functioning of the union, not much changes. Right. Right. Well, and, 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 and I know it's um, I sometimes am I'm cognizant of the fact that I'll sound like I only, everything looks like a look like a like a nail because I have a hammer. But. I mean, that, that that's the danger of the service model is you have all of the power, authority and knowledge 
in the custody of just a handful of people. Um, and and so it, it, it creates a bottleneck. It creates a danger. And a part of the problem, too, is, you know, even if you're the best local leader, I mean, this is not an indictment of, of local leaders are doing it all, but it's, it's something to be aware of. Even if you're the best local leader, there are going to be issues you're not going to have visibility into. Um, there are going to be they're going to be, you know, things happening in shifts and positions and departments and work locations that even if you're, you're plugged in as much as one person possibly can be, you're not going to know about. And so there are going to be people whose whose work lives are harmed, whose work lives are, are 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 suffering from the fact that they're not being given access to the the the, the local and 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 the, the leadership and helping say the thing you know, about you know things that bother them. So you need to democratize the union in order for all the issues to be to be addressed. And people are always going to be happier and and feel and and it'll be genuine ownership of the union when they're addressing the issues that affect them most personally. Right. Right. Yeah. And and the um, so I think that's all incredibly important. And the and, and you mentioned Jane McAlevey. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jane McAlevey. I have read, um, you know, all of her first books and now I, I'm reading her, her newest book, Rules to Win By. And, and one of the things that, that she really stresses is the power of the strike weapon and how that's incredibly important for uh you know for workers to be able to to you know get what they need and obviously the federal government em employees we can't strike that's not it's not legal for us to strike and so there are some people that that kind of get the idea that oh well we can't strike so we have no power and we're just totally at the whim of, of the agency and there's not really that much that we can do um can you Talk to us about how how that's wrong, and and what are some other uh, you know levers of power that that federal employees can pull, even though we don't have the strike weapon. I think that's a great question, um, and it's a hard question, and I think there is um, a, a real pitfall in our thinking where I think that's a part of why we've allowed ourselves to succumb to the service model so much, is because we 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 don't think of ourselves as having the the DNA to allow us to be a, a, a militant labor organization where we have mobilized folks that have the power to power to change things. Um, I think one of the things that's most powerful about a strike, other than the economic leverage it creates, is in order to being strike ready as a local or as a, a national union, is um, is a discipline. Um, and if if you looked at the UAW strike recently. They didn't say where they were going to go on strike, not just to the bosses, but to the the the, the folks in the shops. And that's because there, it created an economic exigency for, for the company where they needed to be ready or couldn't be ready about or couldn't prepare for where, where they were going to lose, lose work and where they'd suffer an economic hit. But also, the union had to remain strike ready in every location. Um, and ultimately, what that means is having conversations with everybody and having engagement and and commitment from everybody the whole time and as long as everybody is engaged and committed that's of huge significance because having everybody involved in care is something that management is aware of and can't ignore um i remember once when i was negotiating a contract with a small agency um i sat down with our proposals and, and handed them to to the agency's chief negotiator and he threw them back across the table and said, listen, you guys have really low density. You represent less than 50% of the workers here because people in, in the federal sector, people can snoop and shop. Um, people can be members or not members whether or not they're covered um, for, for some of the, our viewers that might not know that. 
And they said, so what you're asking is what you, the, the, the person across the table is asking, but it's not what the members want. So why should I give it to you? And being strike ready as a model, what's demonstrated is that everybody's all, all working together. Everybody is committed. Everybody is, is uh, fully invested in the fight. And that's something that whether you're striking or not, management can see and management cares about. Um, and it, it's it's a difference, for instance, between being able to roll out a management initiative successfully or not, is having the input discussion and partnership of the union or not. Um, and so all of that matters all the time, and they're going to pay attention to whether or not people are invested in showing up and caring either way. Um, so you can have escalating direct actions that matter in a bunch of ways. You can have a button day or a t-shirt day, um, depending on what your uniform requirements are. Uh, you can have a march on the boss, where if they're the grievance, Everybody uh, during during their their uh, respective lunch hours, you know, takes a, the grievance and a petition and marches it into the boss's office and you know thinks solidarity forever and demands it get attention. You can have uh, informational pickets and invite the media. Um, you can invite local uh, invite uh, local elected officers who are uh, the, the the bosses of the agencies and in charge of all of their funding mechanisms. Uh, you can have letter writing campaigns. Um, one of the things that's different is, you know, uh, the bosses of federal employees are elected officials. Um, there is no referendum for being able to get rid of a boss in the private sector, but being able to uh, address the, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we would vote them out. Um, although, I mean, outside of Hatch Act, I mean, political mobilization is a very powerful tool, but drawing attention, but, but uh, our bosses are answerable to them. So, you know, if, if you work for a military boss or a military base and you reach out to the elected officials and say, you know, all the people that live in this community are affected by what happens in this military base and we're not happy to see it and we're calling on you to help us address it or a VA uh, hospital or you know, social security, you can you can you can enlist the support of not just community allies, but electeds in a way that has more salience um, and you can build up in a campaign to all those things. And they have as much effect without the economic exposure to to the membership um, that I think winds up coming out in the wash. Um, would I like to be able to strike? Sure. Um, I would like for us to have every weapon in our arsenal that we possibly could. But I think that there are other levers that we can pull on that do similar things. And frankly, I don't feel deprived for the, for, for the, the, the lack of ability to do it. And if we help reorient the view, the view, uh, the viewpoint of federal employees towards their union that rewards engagement and militancy and and a fearlessness that you know would be, would be akin to what you would get with strike mobilization. You know, sky's the limit. And we've seen we've seen for whatever it's worth, we've we've seen real success there. Um, we've been we've been lobbying and mobilizing and uh, protesting for fair pay for TSA, and they just got the largest uh, members of AFG. They just got the largest increase in federal employees in federal history recently, um, and full contract rights. Um, we just got you know we we had a foot dragging with the VA and Social Security to abandon the Trump era restrictions that they were planning on putting on our collective bargain agreements. And through member mobilization, I mean, our staff is great. We have, we have the best staff in the game, I'd like to say. But uh, it was member mobilization that got us across the field to getting great new contracts with both those groups. Um, all of our successes belong to the membership. And all of that comes from escalating direct action and mobilization in, in, of the kind that you would see with being strike ready. You're talking about contracts, and 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 you mentioned that um, as of the Janus decision, it's fairly recent. Although I guess the Janus decision was now multiple years ago. Um, <clears throat> uh, 
you know, because of the Janus decision, fed, all federal um, shops are open shops. Um, something else that uh, folks might not know or might not think about with federal employees is that we can't bargain uh, with our agencies over our salaries. They're, they're, our salaries are set by Congress. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the general schedule and the NH and the WG and all, all these schedules, they're set by statute. Right. And so uh, we don't we can't collectively bargain over that. And so then, uh, you know, kind of like with the strike weapon, uh, you know, us not having that. Well, if you can't bargain over your wages, then what are you bargaining bargaining over? And and, you know, the reality is and I think if most people think about it, uh, you know, is is the wages the only thing that I care about at my job? Uh, The answer is no. And in in fact, in a lot of organizing campaigns, wages are are pretty low on the list. Uh, You know, a lot of it really has to do with dignity and respect and 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 feeling you know feeling like you're being treated like a human on the job by management you're not being walked over and you have some sort of recourse when management kind of steps out of line um that really kind of rises to the top and so uh in in along with that uh do you have are, are there any contracts that that you have seen uh at all you know over your years working for AFGE or or that have been one recently that have you know, really interesting and unique wins uh, for the workers at that agency. Um, and that I, I, that may be a question for like the national bargaining director. I don't know if that uh, position exists or not, but uh, but maybe a question for somebody else. But but I'd, I'd be interested in your answer if you have one. No, that's a great question. Um, and I, I'm 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 happy to say that before I had that, that this position, I had that position. So, okay, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, and, and the person to have it now, Marlon Jenkins, is amazing. Way better than I ever was. So, uh, no, uh, no, uh, no shade there. Um, but I think I'll start by, if you don't mind, I'll start by talking about um, the first contract I ever negotiated and how what you're saying is true. Um, I started out um, in the private sector, and the first contract I ever negotiated was for a uh, company that made batteries for missiles and satellites. And uh, so I drive out to the factory and they had two, they had a big parking lot in the middle and they had two buildings. Um, one with the factory and the other with management offices. Now it goes straight to management offices and negotiate. And uh, you know, things oftentimes move faster in the private sector than the public sector um, when it comes to negotiation. So after a couple of weeks, we negotiated a contract. We got great raises like three, four, 5% per year. Um, and this is at a time uh, long time ago, but I had hair, uh, when um, insurance was going up about 13% per year in, 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 in the cost. Um, and we contained insurance costs. So we brought everybody in. This was, a, a even though the private sector union was, a, a, you know, they, 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 they had good, good, good practices. So they had a, a ratification vote and people came in and they voted down almost unanimously. And I was shocked. I said, what happened? Why is it? Why this is a great contract? Why'd you guys vote it down? They said, well, you, you know, you and your bargaining team never asked, but Come with us across the parking lot into the other other building, into the factory, and see what it's like. I said, I, I guess, okay. And you can just tell me. They said, no, come with us. So we we left the big glass building, walked across the parking lot, and walked into the factory. And the factory was, in essence, a giant airplane hangar that had never been properly retrofitted to be a factory. So there were big areas where windows would be where there was nothing. So, you know, they worked in sweltering heat in the summer and freezing temperatures in, in the winter. Um, they showed me a bathroom that looked like something out of train spotting. It was a nightmare. Um, there was one one of the people who was on the bargaining committee who was a a, a lady in her seventies, um, you know, a, who was um, excellent about talking about contract language. You know, understood stuff really well. I never mentioned this, but she showed me her job, 
where she would carry this giant 30 pound battery across, you know, this floor of broken concrete with an open top that was sloshing around with all this dangerous chemicals. Um, she did that day in and day out. That was her job. He said, this is the stuff we care about, our working conditions and the fact that it shows a lack of respect that even when we address it, we can't get, you know, a, you know, a, a workable, uh, a livable working space and usable bathrooms and stuff like that. So we went back to the table and, you know, our slate of proposals were totally different. And when we got the, you know, when we negotiated on what people cared about and it was based on terms and conditions that the employees said that mattered to them, everyone was happy. Um, and it, it, it was ratified unanimously. And so, you know, it, it goes to show that as you're saying, and when you ask workers what they care about, um, you're going to get a different answer and it's not always necessarily going to be strictly economic. And so that's a part of what happens in the federal sector. And, you know, folks that are, that are new to bargaining, will hear all the time, you know, you want to change this, you want to change that. That's, that's, a that's a too small an issue. It's de minimis. And, you know, we, we don't have to bargain over that, but we can bargain over everything in the federal sector. We can bargain over everything from the price of the food and the vending machines. Um, and, and, and more, more than that too, we can bargain about staffing ratios. We can bargain about types of pay and reward that go beyond simple wages. Um, you can, you can negotiate uh, leave. You can negotiate almost everything that has to do with your day-to-day -day work. And ultimately that winds up being a lot of what matters to people most, you know, opportunities for promotion, opportunities for um, health and safety, particularly in, particularly in the wake of COVID. Um, so we've negotiated some, some amazing contracts over the years. And again, the thing that it comes down to is making sure that the employees are having a voice about the things that matter to them, because even, even when you've got a bargaining team that's composed entirely of uh, rank and file workers, you know, if you represent a group like the VA, where it's over 300,000 people, or a group like, uh, you know, the Social Security, where it's almost 50,000 people, the same for TSA, you're going to be hearing about issues that need to be represented at the table and are going to make huge differences in people's work lives. So while we've seen um, amazing contract language, I'm always hesitant to say this is the thing that makes the biggest difference because I have the privilege of, of you know, in, do, in doing organizing work of talking to workers, the things that matter to people are, are never the things that I would assume. Well, sometimes, and obviously sometimes they are, but it varies. Um, and, and seeing, you know, seeing what makes a difference is always, uh, always very personal. And, 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 and it, the, the nature of that is what's so rewarding. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that sound that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so negotiating a contract, uh, you know, like you said, lots of, lot, lots of things that you can negotiate over, uh, kind of the sky's the limit to a certain extent. Um, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, this organized, you know, some of the approaches that you're trying to instill in, in local leaders and, and, and help them, them learn and, and build up. And, and so if I'm at, you know, I, we're, uh, on the radio in Alabama and Louisiana, but online, you know, folks from all over the country listen to us. And, and so I, I do get questions from some folks in, in federal employee locals and, you know, talking about how, you know, they don't feel like their local has uh, a really strong presence on the job. They don't feel like, you know, they have a whole lot of uh, uh, um, ownership over their contract. Their contract is old, um, you know. Uh, and just generally that, that they don't feel like the union's strong. Not a lot of people are members of the unions. Uh, the management doesn't think about the union much when they're making decisions. Uh, you know, in, in, in cases like that, what would some of your, what would some of your advice be to, uh, you know, rank and file activists or, or local leaders in that situation who, who want to turn that around? Well, to, uh, to go back to my previous joke, that sounds like a nail. Uh, 
Um, I think I think I think the the, the way to solve to, to solve an issue of uh, a lo- and there, there are different issues in that. So one is a local that's stagnant, where you have a local that had fallen into a pattern of a certain type of representation of a certain level and a certain complexion that that isn't meeting the needs of what the the whole bargaining unit has. So even if we're just evaluating it on on as a service local, it's not doing enough. Um, and then the other is, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a local where people are discontent and, uh, it's, it's not doing enough and pe- people are upset because, uh, their voices are failing to be heard. Um, the answer to both of those things is for people to get more involved and to have conversations and, and to show up, um, because the power of the union is never going to come from the local president. And we, I've, I've seen great local presidents from, Powerful unions and have uh, locals, and I've seen great local presidents at, at sort of anemic and weak ones. Um, it goes back to you know sitting across the table from the agency, saying you know you don't represent half these people. Why should I care? Um, if people show up and people are involved in what's in, in saying what they care about, and taking a taking a piece of what the union does and engaging in that representation and organizing together, that's going to make a huge difference. Um, so you don't, you know you don't need to be a local officer. To have an organizing conversation with a coworker. Um, in fact, I would argue that when we talked about, uh, you know, bandwidth, that um, the organizing should be done by an organizing committee. You know, with ten percent of the workforce spaced out in every shift, every position description, every location, you know, every 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 group, so that uh, you know the diversity of the work- workforce in all of its manifestations is represented. Ten um, percent at least. I mean, that's not necessarily the local leaders. Um, it you know they're not going to have time for that. If I'm negotiating a contract, I don't have time to be having one-on-one conversations with everybody and mapping it out, um, and you know giving people assessments and tasking people. Um, so you can have a conversation with somebody and ask them what they care about, ask them what they'd like to see fixed, fixed, and ask them if they'd be willing to get involved with in the union with you to help address it, no matter who you are. And um, a, a a local that is has been you know on on its heels for a while will be forced to be responsive to it. And a local that's looking to improve will be welcoming of it. Um, but either way, you know, the 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 way that you give uh, a, a struggling local a jolt is by engaging in organizing and getting people involved. Um, and you're gonna you're gonna increase your power, you're gonna increase your influence, you're gonna increase the 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 number of hands that that you know, you know many hands build a barn faster than just a few. Um, and that's that's the same thing with that uh, with a local. Many, many hands are more powerful. Um, and so you can get more representation and you'll be taken more seriously as a result. So yeah. I, I, you know, it's a, it's an organ, it's, it's a representation question with an organizing answer. And just to, you know, circle back to the beginning of the conversation to, to wrap this up, you know, this is, uh, making use of this, uh, model has been really successful for AFG. You mentioned 5% year over year growth. Uh, that is, that's huge. Uh, and put put some numbers to that for us. What what does that mean in terms of of number of numbers of new members? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we have. I don't know if you ever heard of the silver tsunami. They've been talking about it in the federal sector for for decades now. It first came up under Bill Clinton. But uh, you know, we've got a, 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 an older than average workforce. We have about thirty five hundred people retire every month. So in order to break even, we need to be bringing in thirty five hundred people. Um, so we've been we've been building on that. Um, I think last month we added a uh, thousand new members. We've been having about twelve hundred uh, per month on average added recently. Um, and so again, I, you know, that's not our organizers are out there working hard, doing great. Um, and I, I couldn't be prouder of the work that they do. 
But ultimately, if you're going to have real success in organizing, it's getting done by local activists and not just local presidents, but people that are involved. Um, so we've seen, you know, uh, tremendous growth. Um, we're back to where we were before the pandemic. We had a hu huge loss um, during that time. Um, and uh, and and our, our numbers continue to grow. And I'm pleased to say that it looks like the, the growth rate is still accelerating, um, which makes sense because when you have workers talking to workers about the issues that matter to them, that naturally is scalable um, in a way that uh, staff-driven organizing wouldn't be. Um, so as long as we we have fidelity towards you know what you were talking about with the you know the the Jane McAlevey model of you know organizing and worker empowerment and having workers do the work having having you know federal employees talk to federal employees and getting support and instruction and guidance and resources from um, their leadership and the staff sky's the limit. Yep, absolutely, and and uh, couldn't couldn't come at a more needed time as we go into. Uh, an election year 2024, and um, there's a very real possibility of a second Trump administration uh, that has uh, all but declared preemptive war on federal workers. And um, and, and so it's going to take that strong organization from the bottom to the top to be able to uh, uh, to resist and repel that attack uh, that, that would come with a second Trump administration. So, uh, so this has all been very great. Uh, Dave, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that uh, 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 you leave our listeners with before we let you go? Uh, yeah, if you don't mind, um, I'd, yeah. I'd say I'd say two things. Uh, the first one is if you don't have a union yet, um, feel free to reach out to uh, the AFL-CIO uh, tip line um, for whatever sector you're in. They can pass along your request to um, organizing leadership at different unions so that you can organize. Um, there is no job where having a voice isn't worthwhile. Um, and the second thing is if you're a federal employee, uh, check out uh, the AFG website. And uh, there's information right there where you can, can join or uh, inquire about starting a union at your location. Um, you know, ho hopefully you've been compelled to, to, to think about the things that you'd like to see changed. And uh, there are 757 people just waiting to stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with you. Um, thank you, Jake, for giving me a chance uh, to talk a little bit. I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for coming on. Enjoyed it. All right, folks. Dave Can, uh, National Organizing Director for the American Federation of Government Employees, the largest federal employee union in the country. Uh, really appreciate his time. I enjoyed that. And, yeah, really enjoyed uh, that. Uh, great stuff. And, and yeah. love to hear that coming from a big union, uh, embracing organizing. Uh, it's, it's definitely yeah. much needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. We've got a phone number, and the phone line is open, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And we do have a caller on the line Okay. Uh, from a 267 area code. I believe I know who this is. Uh, 267 area code. Uh, what is your name, and where are you calling from? Hello? Yep, that's you. 267, who you who are you? Uh, where are you calling from? Mm. May have set the phone down and walked away. Yep. Uh sorry about that. Give us a call mm -hmm. back. Yep. Put him you can put him uh yeah. 
Yep. Give us a call back. Uh, 844-899-TVLR is the phone number. 844-899-8857 if you want to call in. The phone lines are open and the water is warm. So uh, <clears throat> we featured this story on our thumbnail, and it's a really important story. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about that. And that's Elon Musk trying to abolish the National Labor Relations wow. Board. Yeah. And it's worth just underscoring that this is stemming from eight SpaceX employees that were fired because they wrote an open letter critical of Elon Musk's leadership um, at the company, uh, which affects their working conditions, and which is therefore protected, concerted, activity under the National Labor Relations Act, you have a right in this country, in the United States, uh, to discuss and to act on your complaints about your working conditions. And, uh, you know, if he doesn't like that, he can go back to South Africa. Uh, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, but we have a right to that in this country. And so, um, multiple SpaceX employees did that and eight of them were fired uh, specifically for that. I mean, uh, you know, SpaceX didn't even try to hide it. And so the NLRB said, uh, that's illegal. <laughs> you got to rehire these people and you got to give them back pay. And an administrative law judge agreed. And now Elon Musk is appealing it to um, an appeals court, uh, took it to a federal court last week saying that, um, you know, not only is this like, this isn't a correct application of the law, I disagree with the general counsel, whatever. Uh, they're saying uh, the SpaceX, SpaceX's argument is that actually the entire agency's structure is unconstitutional because it deprives him of his right to a trial by jury. Uh <laughs> I don't think that's what the trial by jury was made for, actually. <laughs> this is not a criminal conviction, unfortunately. I think it should be in a lot of these, in a lot of cases. We should have criminal convictions uh, for labor violations, but we don't, uh, much to the benefit of people like Elon Musk. And, uh, but nevertheless, he is, uh, and so that's his argument, is that uh, the way that the structure of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, which is set up to enforce the National Labor Relations Act, is unconstitutional. The system of administrative law judges is illegitimate uh, on its face, and the whole regime has to be overturned uh, because of that. Uh, and he presumably thinks that this would result in a better regime for bosses, uh, so that bosses like him can run roughshod over their employees and do whatever they want, uh, even irrespective of their performance, right? Because there's not even a there's not even a performance allegation in the firing of these SpaceX employees. It's just that Elon Musk didn't like their speech, and so he <coughs> fired them, which is incredibly ironic because he bills himself as a free speech absolutist. And there are just so many stories, story after story after story of Elon Musk showing how his claim to that title is absurd. It is just simply not accurate. There was another one uh, during the break over in Sweden where a Tesla employee in Sweden uh, 
was called and into Tesla's office and disciplined because his wife posted derogatory uh, comments about Tesla on her social media. Insane. Absolutely bonkers stuff. And so, you know, he's trying to do that in this country. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for him, uh, workers have certain <laughs> not protected enough and too little. But we have certain free speech rights in this country. And and he wants to overturn that. And that's, and you know, just one of many examples. It's not just Elon Musk. I mean, the whole cadre of these fools who go on about how free speech is so important. None of them really mean it. All they mean when they talk about free speech being important is that they want their multimillionaire friends to be able to sell more books and be in the New York Times opinion pages more often than they already are to be able to speak at campuses without any pro uh, uh, protests, stuff like that. They're not actually concerned with any, uh, you know, with free speech rights of workers, of, uh, you know, working people to talk about their conditions uh, because they want to be able uh, to lord over them, uh, you might could say, uh, without any repercussion or input from the workers. So really, really gross stuff there. And it's, um, it's really important because, and, and it's worth underscoring that the national labor relations act was the compromise, right? <laughs> right? The national labor relations act happened after uh, workers were occupying factories, uh, holding enormous mass picket lines, uh, you know, actual violent demonstrations of their power. Uh, and there were frequent armed struggles between workers and the local police and the National Guard and all of this. And so, uh, you know, the National Labor Relations Act was the compromise. It is supposed to be this thing that, you know, workers and bosses can both agree that there's this process and it's nonviolent and all of this. That, that That's the system that he's trying to overturn. He is trying to send us back to the days where workers literally had to be violent to uh, get the things that, that we have today and literally had to mostly actually not be violent, mostly uh, have violence inflicted on them by the state and company thugs, right? That's the world that he wants to send us back to. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of benefits to the owning class, to a regime like that. Uh, but there are also some downsides, uh, that being that, you know, if, if workers, you know, if we don't have any expectation that our rights are going to be upheld, you know, then uh, we have to take matters into our own hands in more ways than we are uh, right now. And and so there are also some downsides and, and, and folks like Elon Musk should think about that uh, before trying to totally upend the system of labor relations that we have in this country. Yeah, you know, I was reading this story. I was uh, I'm reading the Southern Key by Michael Goldfield, and he had the story in there about uh, the mayor of Chicago. This was during the the height of the depression, and uh, he was writing about and Goldfield's writing about, um, in this case, unemployed organizing, the mm. unemployed mass organizing of unemployed folks 
uh, and they were pushing demands. And um, in Chicago, they they held uh, some emergency actions, got some emergency funding to provide some relief. And the mayor said, hey, for people who are going to gripe about this because their taxes might go up, this is the best way that I make sure you keep your property. Mm. Uh, in other yeah. words, you know, this this reform that, you know, that we're, we have to at least, you know, give some crumbs to the masses. Right. right? Uh, we, we have to give them something uh, and give some sort of reform. Otherwise, you back people into a corner um, and people who have nothing left to lose can be, you know, really unpredictable. Um, and, you know, it, it is unfortunate. You know, we're seeing the return of the Gilded Age in so many respects in our society from the inequality of wealth uh, and, and to the this power of these robber baron type figures. Uh, and it's unfortunate he wants to take us back to those days of labor relations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's yeah, it, it's it's a vicious, um, violent, uh, very dark time in our history uh, when workers risk their lives to organize, risk their lives to make their lives better and their families better and and to try to have some dignity on the job. And it, it often came with violence. It came with all sorts of repercussions, blacklisting, uh, you name it. Um, and so, you know, this is this is who, who he is. This is what he's about. Uh, this right. is what he wants for everyday people. Uh, so, you know, that's why I always am baffled by you know, the regular people who are fanboys mm. of people like Elon Musk. Right. Um, you know, we're not in the same class. We're not yeah. the same. Sorry. Yeah. What's good for Elon Musk is uh, actually, in fact, uh, not good for us, by and large. We have different interests. Um. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens with the trial and, you know, we'll find out what happens. Uh, I noticed the NLRB has no comment at this time, yeah. which, you know, probably is for the best. Right. Uh, if I, you know, if I had, had to give them advice, like, don't even get into this, this you know, shit-slinging match with him. But, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, nothing would surprise me with the amount of right-wing extremists that are dominating in so many of our courts right you know you you can't trust these these judges no you can't trust them to to do the right thing um and so you know it it may not be as much of a long shot as it may seem on the outside um i i hope nothing comes of it but i wouldn't be shocked and i'm sure um you know he's hoping for a trump administration which would which would be yet another way to gut the NLRB, um, you know, not to get on that subject, but, um, right. you know, so there's there's a lot of threats to the existing labor relations regime from multiple directions right now between the election, between these kind of lawsuits and, uh, you know, companies like Amazon and Starbucks really pushing the boundaries to see what they can get away with. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is going to you know, determine the amount of power that, that workers have in a potentially new labor regime if Elon Musk gets his way and, and um, abolishes the National Labor Relations Board uh, is union density. And uh, Obama-era Labor Secretary Seth Harris has a prediction in his blog uh, saying that he thinks that union density is going to increase 
in 2023. He thinks that that's what the numbers are going to show. And um, I, I told my wife that and she was like, not impressed at all. Uh, <laughs> she was like, she was like, it's not a prediction if it's after 2023 is over. That's not a prediction. And, and I'm like, well, no, the number's not out yet. It's not, <laughs> you don't know. The number's not out yet. So she was less impressed than I am at this. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's not like a like a woo-woo, like I feel like I'm vibing that, that union density is going to increase in 2023. He, he actually does have some numbers on it. So in, in a way, it is, you know, it's not like if it was a woo-woo prediction, then, then you know, maybe it would be impressive. But um, woo-woo predictions are just as likely wrong as they are right. So. Uh, also not impressive. Anyway, he actually looks at numbers and, and he's very convincing, I think, uh, in his prediction that the union density is going to have increased in 2023. And so he starts his blog with with just a, an explanation of, of the union density, right? You know, explaining that it's just a, like it's a simple fraction. It's union members over uh, uh, workers. Total, total yeah. employees, right? Union members over total employees. And so in 2022, we had a 10.1% union density rate, a decline from 10.3% in 2021. And so so there we go. We have kind of the general... Um, uh, oh, and in 2022, the number of union members was 14.285 million, and there were 141.673 million total employees. And so there we go. That gives us our union density rate. And so all you have to do to get the the new union density rate is update those numbers. And some of those numbers are still coming out, but we can we can kind of do a little extrapolation and, and he does that. And so he says that um, in 2023, the US economy created 2.7 million jobs. Um, but when calculating the union density rate, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics excludes self-employed workers from the denominator. Um, so the, uh, that means that, you know, the number of union eligible workers, the number of union eligible new jobs is less than 2.7 million. But he keeps that just for the purpose of, of easy math. Um, and so we've got the new denominator. Right. And so uh, then he starts taking a look at the numerator in the fraction. And, and he, he says that so in order to just maintain a union density rate of 10.1 which was the 2022 level, the labor movement would have had to add 272,700 new members in 2023. Uh, so that's what we would need to just tread water. And so then the question is, well, you know, did we do that? And so he takes a look at some numbers that, that are public, that are already out there. Um, and, and he comes to the, the belief that, yeah, we beat that, actually. Uh, so one obvious thing to do is to look at NLRB elections. And so the number of successful NLRB elections, the number of workers that went through successful NLRB elections, increased by more than 31,000 from the last fiscal year to 78,000 this year. So almost 80,000 new workers in the labor movement just through the NLRB. So we're already like, you know, a fifth of the way there, right? That's a pretty big that's a pretty big number. And that number does not include elections among federal, state, or local government employees, which are a very big part of the labor movement. Um, and those NLRB results do not include the last calendar quarter of 2023. So 
then there's also recognition, voluntary and otherwise. Um, and you know, he's it's not super clear how uh you know how many people were organized in that way. Uh, but you know, he says every little bit gets us closer to the goal. Growing unionized businesses is another way to add to union members. Um, and he mentions that, you know, in particularly among the construction trade unions, you know, President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law, the CHIPS Act, uh, the Inflation Redu Reduction Act is going to inject hundreds of billions of dollars into the construction industry. And that process has already begun. According to my informal conversations, building trades union apprenticeship programs have already grown substantially this year. Uh, Lyuna president Brent Booker said during uh, our Labor Day blog cast with Seth Harris that his union's goal is to reach one million members, a near doubling of his membership in 10 years. And he said that the growth has already begun. So there you go. The U.S. economy added more than 670,000 construction jobs since President Biden took office, uh, including 192,000 in 2023. Construction has a higher than average union density rate, so there's good reason to believe a, a sizable share of these construction jobs are union jobs. So there you go. Substantially more building trades union members. Filling vacant jobs is another way to increase uh, union membership. Uh, that was a big goal of AFSCME's Staff the Frontline campaign uh, during 2023, uh, trying to fill 800,000 open jobs among <laughs> state and local governments in uh, as of October 2023. Um, so if that effort was at all successful, then many of those new public employees will become union members. The Teamsters already, uh, they got... Um, 7,500 new Teamster jobs and 22,000 uh, and and uh, commitments to hire 22,000 uh, unfilled jobs. So there you go. The hiring will increase union membership at UPS, which is the country's largest private sector bargaining unit, by almost 10%. Um, so there you go. That's another big thing. Organizing and represented units. Uh, we talked about that with Dave Can. how you can, you know, just increase density in your unit. That's going to add to the uh, the overall union density rate and um, creating more unionized employees uh, by, you know, bringing contract work into the bargaining unit, uh, doing away with subcontractors. So there you go. Um and he concludes by saying, these six active union membership growth strategies give me confidence that union density grew in 2023. I would be surprised if any of these strategies alone produced 273,000 or more union members in 2023 taken together. I think it's likely, I would say highly likely, that union membership grew substantially in 2023. So there we go. So that's his prediction. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, from his uh, keyboard to God's ears as the saying goes. That's yeah, it. yeah. I, I hope to see the growth. We'll see, you know, how it turns out. I'm interested in Alabama's numbers in particular. Um, Alabama showed an increase in 2022, uh, the largest increase in the South, and I'm curious if that uh, sticks in the new BLS survey data that comes out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it, this makes intuitive sense, and so we'll see. Um I don't know that our unions are doing enough. I don't think there's enough embrace of new organizing yet. Right. Um, because even with 
what I, I suspect will be some modest growth this year. It's just not nearly enough right. for what we need. Uh, so, you know, hopefully it's trending in the right direction, though. That'll be good to see. Um, yeah, really curious the breakdown um, and the numbers, how they're going to shake out in the South, uh, how they're going to shake out in Alabama in particular. Um, you know, but those numbers, as small as they are, are still nothing to to dismiss, right? right. I mean, there's 150,000 union members in Alabama. Yeah. It's not enough to win the governor's race, right? But it's enough to uh, to be the foundation of a movement. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Um, here's another story that really kind of illustrates the value of union membership. Um, comedy being legal again at NPR. Uh, <laughs> there was a reporter who was fired last year, and this is at, 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 in Vice, uh, wrote about this. The title is, Fired Comedian Ordered to Get Day Job Back After Jokes Ruled, Quote, Simply Funny. Uh, by Jules uh, Roscoe. Uh, so Jad uh, Sliman was a reporter in Philadelphia before he was fired over his comedy career, and now uh, an arbitrator said that the uh, employer has to reinstate him. And so the reason that he was fired is because Philadelphia-based NPR member station, WHYY, uh, said that his comedy clips, which covered topics including 9-11, Israel, and oral sex, could violate uh, the company's social media policy. Um, and so that's why, uh, that's why they did it. Uh, and he said that they were, you know, not only did they fire him, but they were just really, like, petty about it. They took down all of his articles. Uh, they cut off my health insurance the same day despite the fact that they know I have multiple sclerosis and rely on very expensive drugs to walk. I mean, really kind of just gross stuff. Really, really gross stuff. Um, and, and so, yeah, senior management found clips of his stand-up comedy routines uh, egregious uh, with sexual connotations, racial connotations, and misogynistic information. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I understand what those words mean to be honest uh misogynistic information what is that <laughs> i don't know I what it's information that's misogynistic what I, do you what do you I, not get i don't know i guess so so I, I mean i guess i'd have to hear it to know what's misogynistic yeah. about the information but uh in in a compromise in the arbitrate for the arbitrator he did have to take down all of his uh comedy posts from social media so we can't review his jokes which is uh, very unfortunate. Uh, the comedy, um, he says, Sliman says, focused on his, quote, experiences as an Arab American raised in a Muslim family, his experience in the Marine Corps, and his reporting while in the Middle East. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, one of his jokes that his management didn't like was, um, I work at one of these places that's so woke, it's kind of racist. <laughs> like this lady asked my boss, she's like, yo, does Jad consider himself a person of color? Because she was making a list of us. Fucking hell? Sick. All right. I get to be in this lady's brown dude Pokedex. So there you go. So that's some of the jokes that he was fired over. Uh, but he was uh, he is now going to be reinstated uh, after the arbitrator's ruling. Uh, he was represented by SAG-AFTRA grievance lawyers, and they argued that he had been terminated without due process. 
Um, so that's the unfortunate uh, cold water on the uh, on the ruling is that um, the arbitrator didn't say that he gets his job back because his jokes were funny. Uh, rather, he gets his job back because the bosses did not follow the uh, discipline procedure. And if they had properly followed it, the arbitrator said they could they could have gone through with the firing interesting um, yeah well i which mean it's a bummer but you know i mean hey that if, is that is why you know a union is very important i mean yeah. it's one of the reasons why uh because you never know when you're going to get in trouble and right. you want someone to have your back and uh you know unions fight for employees to have due process for there to be fair equitable procedures to discipline employees when there is trouble and when the bosses don't follow those procedures, that's on them. That's their fault. And it's the union's role to catch that and to mm-hmm. enforce it. So good on SAG-AFTRA for, for yep. getting this uh, fellow his job back, you know. Um, don't know anything about his comedy. Don't know if it's offensive or not. Frankly, I'm not going to sit here and take a position on something I don't know. Uh, but what I do know is that workers deserve due process. And so if the employer did not follow that, uh Good on him for getting his job back. Yeah. Even though he didn't get his job back because his jokes were funny, the arbitrator's ruling did perform, <laughs> according to Vice, quote, an in-depth analysis of the nine comedy samples to determine whether they were in violation of the reading of this reading of the policy. And uh, so of the joke titled Kind of Racist, the arbitrator wrote that it was a, uh, quote, powerful condemnation in a funny way of what Sliman calls corporatized racial consciousness. About, quote, Trump versus Muslims versus Jews, he wrote that much of the clip is somewhat amusing. <laughs> Another joke was, quote, simply funny. But the arbitrator was not a fan across the board. They found one joke was, quote, insightful, principled, and serious, but not very funny. <laughs> Sliman <laughs> said he was disappointed by this review. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, there you go. Uh, you, know, you know, I got it. I once uh, had an arbitration about myself, and uh, the ruling was not so fun to re- read. Uh, <laughs> nothing like that. Yeah. Uh, Vice asked him, uh, or in his um, interview with Vice, he said, people keep asking me, is it going to be weird going back? I'm like, yeah, for them. Uh, so, exactly. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> nothing to be weird about on his end. Just yeah. uh, go in, do your thing, and uh, I bet you they'll follow due process next time they want to fire somebody. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So that's a uh, really exciting. Um, pretty. Uh, pretty cool. Even though um, there's a little bit of little bit of cold water thrown on it. It's not as fun as the headline might imply, but nevertheless, it's still a good story and a good illustration of the value of union membership um, because uh, even in cases where management has a right to fire you, they should have to follow the process. They should have, you should have due process, just like people accused of crimes in our criminal justice system. They should have due process and so should workers. Uh, bosses shouldn't have unilateral authority to do whatever the hell they want, um, because that's uh, that's dumb. They shouldn't have that power. And the only way to take that power from them is by uh, unionizing. So there you go. Uh, you want to get to anything else, or are you good to go ahead and wrap up? We're like three minutes early. Uh, well, the only other 
I mean, there was some other news regarding politics. Um, I don't know if you want to get to that or not um, regarding Trump. Yeah. Um, we can get to you. that. It, 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 uh, I'm, I'm fine either way. Yeah. I, uh, let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. Okay. Um, uh, I know it's been brought up quite a bit out there on the Internet. Yeah. So uh, what he's referring to is um, General President of the Teamsters, Sean O'Brien. Held a um, held a uh, a meeting, a private meeting with uh, Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago um, in preparation for a roundtable to be held with Trump and other Teamster officers and rank and file workers. Um, and you know, it's uh. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It, you know, it, it, for for one, it, it, it's just kind of weird taking the meeting generally, I think. Uh, but then also allowing it to be used by Trump for uh, as a photo op. You know, Trump. And so Trump, uh, a couple of days ago, put a picture of him and Sean O'Brien both doing a thumbs up on his Truth Social page, right? And so like, Okay, you know, having the meeting is one thing. I, I'm I'm fine to agree to disagree or or to find you know some uh, you know uh, to to uh, hold some tension there. But like doing this next to Trump, like that's that's pretty fucking weird. Uh, 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 weird. And and so he got a lot of he got a lot of backlash. And actually. It was interesting. There was a Teamster that I follow on Twitter said that Teamster Twitter is really fucking pissed off, but Teamster Facebook is like really excited. I don't know how true that is. I am not on Teamster Facebook. I have a view into Teamster Twitter, um, but uh, and so I saw the the outrage about it. Um, but they put out a statement along with the uh, along with their photo. The Teamsters photo didn't have Sean O'Brien doing the thumbs up, but Trump's photo did. Uh, the Teamsters photo had Sean O'Brien doing this just bizarre uh, 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 pose with his hands. Uh, I don't. It was weird. His face looked weird. I don't know what what the deal was. If I I would have wanted that retaken <laughs> if I was Sean O'Brien, he just looked weird. Um, but here's what they said in their press release. Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien met privately with President Donald Trump on Wednesday for an in-depth and productive discussion, I doubt it, on worker issues most important to the Teamsters Union. The former president committed to sit down with rank-and-file Teamsters General President O'Brien and General Secretary-Treasurer Fred Zuckerman in January during another critical presidential round uh, roundtable with union members. The upcoming roundtable will be held in Washington, D.C. at the Teamsters International Headquarters. Uh, quote, there are serious issues that need to be addressed to improve the lives of working people across the country, and the Teamsters Union is making sure our members' voices are heard as we head into a critical election year. We thank the former president for taking time during this private meeting to listen to the Teamsters' top priorities, and we are eager to bring together the rank and file for an important and necessary roundtable with President Trump this month. Additional details uh, will be announced as soon as the Teamsters rank and file presidential uh, roundtable meetings continue. And, uh, you know, so. Can, and, and I also want to interject there to say you know, that my understanding is that they have this open invitation to all the candidates. Yes. Right? Yes. They Cornell do. West, Marianne Williamson, Joe Biden, uh, you know, will, will 
will or can have the same opportunity for a meeting and a roundtable. Uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with that approach, that's its own conversation. But right. uh, I do think that's, you know, it's, right. it, that's an important detail. It's not like they, you know, singled out Trump right, for this. Right. Uh, that's true. Although, uh, although um, they're doing roundtables with all of the candidates, I don't think that Sean O'Brien is doing private meetings okay. with all the candidates. So this is this thing that happened on Wednesday was different. Right. And, you know, again, you can debate. Do you want your president to meet with someone like Trump? And there's, I think, good reasons to be opposed and good reasons to be in favor of it, honestly. Um you know, so right. like I, I think there, you know, there's there's space for disagreement over that. Um, honestly, uh, I'm not right. sure that I feel super strongly one way or the other because I do think there are some good arguments on all sides of it. Um, you know, but here's some of the here's some of the criticisms from Twitter. Uh, one, personally, I don't think that a union official needs to meet with a fascist three days before the anniversary of their attempt to overthrow democratic governance. Um, you know, that's another thing fair, to think fair about. Enough. Uh, um, January 6th is today and, and it is kind of, kind of strange to be, uh, meeting with Trump in this time in particular, uh, to anyone saying it's complicated. It's actually the simplest damn thing in the world. And your judgment is suspect. If you don't see that. Fair enough. You know, if you want to say that, I, I also see that if you are the Teamsters president and the person who may be the next president of the United States wants to meet with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard not to take that meeting. Right. It's Trump hard not to take that meeting. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I would. Right. I can't say that, but I understand that it is, it is complicated um, because arguably, I mean, you know, he, he, O'Brien could arguably say, well, me having this meeting with him could advance the interest of our members, right? If we have a more favorable person in the White House, uh, you know, presuming the meeting helps the relationship, right? Which who knows? Who knows if it even does anything whatsoever? It could right. just be an inconsequential blip on their calendars, um, you know, with a couple of photo ops that may not turn into anything. So I don't know. Um yeah, I'm I'm curious about all the other reactions, though. Yeah. Uh, Trump would sooner call the National Guard than allow a strike at UPS. Trump wants part-time poverty for Teamsters. Wake the fuck up. The threat of an ascendant far right is something we need to get serious about as a labor movement. There's no strategic maverick move here. Trump's politics are anathema to a fighting labor movement. The Teamsters lent credence to the presidential campaign of a union-busting, fascist-curious millionaire. At the most crude level of bread and butter union politics, a vote for Trump is a vote for the boss, terror by CEO. And see, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. Yeah. Uh, I still think it is complicated on, on whether or not you take that meeting right uh, and i do think i think the meeting is different than uh thumbs up photo with donald trump uh, that's yeah that's fair enough because i mean i think that um that does seem to cross a line i mean i think into giving favorable coverage basically to someone yeah. who is clearly our enemy yeah uh and now i recognize that a lot of rank and file teamsters are fans of trump yeah. And I, I don't want to say it's a majority by any means, but there are they're out there and there are others who are kind of on the fence about him, maybe or disengaged from it. But 
so I, you know, yeah. but I do think it, it is something we have to be concerned about in terms of the far right and the fact that they did try to overthrow the government and they're not going to stop. Right. They're not going to stop doing what they do and, and trying to seize more and more power uh, in their pursuit of greed and their pursuit of hatred and bigotry. Uh, and our labor movement does need to be cognizant of that and needs to be doing something about it and, and actually reacting to it. Um, so I get I get yeah. that this, you know, when you put it that way, it does look pretty bad. Yeah. One more uh, uh, one more and then uh, comment. And then I have um, you know, a historical reference. Uh, the, this this comment on Twitter said shows naivety and thirst for personal power over member strength when a union officer connives connives with Trump's Trump or his representatives. Recall AFT president uh, Weingarten thought she was slick. Uh, chatting it up with Steve Bannon, and that actually that. that actually remind uh, that reminded me of Patco. Uh, you know, people think of Reagan and Patco, and how that was terrible for the labor movement, and how Reagan really you know fucked them over, and all of this kind of stuff. People don't remember that Patco endorsed Reagan, right? Uh, and that didn't help them, right? So you know that's very true. Yeah, and so that's the thing, like. If you run the cost-benefit analysis, I'm not sure you really gain anything by yeah. even playing these games with him, with Trump. I'm not sure that you really gain anything. I mean, maybe maybe it helps you have some better relationship, but, I mean, do we really think for any moment that, like, he's going to change his, right. his approach? No, of course not. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't see where you really get much out of it it's yeah it i i I will still i still am convinced that it's it is hard if you are in the president if you're in o'brien's shoes uh and you have an offer on the table to meet with who could be the next president of the united states that is a hard meeting to turn down but i'm not sure that you're gaining anything by it yeah uh and if you are going to engage I think you have to engage on your own terms and, right. uh, you know, maybe yeah, that going to Mar-a- Mar-a-Lago is another kind of weird thing to it as well. But, oh, okay. See, so I didn't realize that. And yeah. And yeah. like, so I, I mean, you know, I would have loved if maybe the statement from the Teamsters also said something about January 6th, for example, right. or, you know, um, so, uh, you know, O'Brien went on Neil Cavuto on Fox Business, and, and it's yet another thing about, you know, O'Brien, uh, you know, and his kind of flirtations with, with the right wing. He goes on Neil Cavuto, like, all the time. I have seen him on Neil Cavuto, uh, like, three or four times in the past two or three months. Um, but anyway, so he went on uh, And And, Neil you know, Cavuto. listen, I, I, I do want to just say I don't necessarily think that suspect in itself because like we air on a right-wing radio station we engage with right-wing media bernie goes on fox news all the time uh you know whatever your thoughts about bernie it doesn't make him like a secret conservative because he does that um so yeah i guess it's one of those things that like the context matters i suppose so here is his uh, here's his reaction to some of the uproar about his meeting with Trump, and then we have a caller on the line. I think I know who this is. I think it's a Teamster, and and probably calling in to to comment on this. So I'm interested in hearing yeah. what they have to say. So let's let's hear what what Sean O'Brien had to say on Neil Cavuto. First off, uh, you met with Donald Trump. How did that go? 
it went well. I mean, it was a, uh, a meeting that, you know, we requested all the candidates to come to Washington, D.C. to meet with us. Unfortunately, his schedule uh, couldn't um, allow for that to happen. So we had just an initial meeting of where we stand on behalf of our members, but we said, you know, we want him to come uh, to Washington, D.C. and meet with our rank-and-file roundtable like we've done with the other candidates, and uh, he's agreed to do that. All right, so what about Joe Biden? You've been at, I believe, events with him, but not in a, in a, in a political role per se, or maybe you can update me. Yeah, so we, we've reached out to the Biden administration, um, and they've yet to give us a date. Uh, we're optimistic that we will get a date. Um, look, this has caused a lot of chaos, uh, uh, this meeting, but, you know, look, we have a job to do on behalf of 1.3 million members, and we our job is to make sure that we make the best choices, and we can't make choices without doing interviews and yeah. um, finding out exactly where people stand on labor issues. Now, um, you're, you're free not to share what you and the former president had to talk about, but, but uh, was it friendly? Yeah, I mean, it was very friendly, very cordial. Uh, and I can tell you what we talked about. I told him it was important to us. I said, we're not going to support any candidate uh, that, you know, wants to push for national right to work. Um, you know, we need some laws changed as it relates to bankruptcy uh, reform. We need some changes in LRB to make, you know, organizing that much easier for people that choose unions. So um, we had a frank conversation, uh, okay. very professional, um, just like we've had with every other candidate. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. So like I said, we got a, uh, a caller on the line, and then we'll we'll take this call, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, calling from a seven one four area code. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Buenos dias and feliz año nuevo to everybody. It's Jose Francisco Negrete at a local nine five two and Cow Teamster Mobilized. Jose, welcome. To... Yeah, long long time no hear from. <laughs> yeah, welcome <laughs> welcome to 2024 Valley Labor Report. There you go. Gracias, gracias, gracias. With, re, with regard to Trump, I wasn't going to call it. I was listening to the show. But, I mean, this Donald Trump thing, I mean, there's a lot of Teamsters that are Donald, that, that are team, Trump Teamsters. There's a lot. I work with a lot of them, you know what I mean? And some of them are good people. They're 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 not fascist. They're not racist. You know, their argument about Trump is with the whole uh, not argument, but the whole agreement with Trump is how the economy was better under Trump than it was than it is with Biden. So that part I understand. But as a Mexican American, when he announced his presidency in 2016, coming down the elevator in his little golden palace out there in the Trump Tower, and the first thing. That he he starts, you know, uh, bashing our our Mexican Americans, called called us drug dealers, called us gangsters, called us rapists, and I guess according to him, some of us some of them are good people. Some of them are good people. Here's a person that wants to divide the working class between race, right? Look what he called the January 16 people. He called them hostages. What did he call the people protesting for George for, uh, George Floyd? Call them thugs, Antifa, communists, you know? And I'm a proud communist. And this guy, for, for Sean O'Brien to meet with, with this fascist, this person that has no respect for the working class, a person that doesn't understand the struggle of the working class, just pays lip service like another one in office right now who claims to be the most pro-labor president ever, 
if they have, there will they will have this round this uh, rank and file uh, roundtable committee meeting, and those rank and file will probably be appointed or hand selected. I hope some of them ask Donald Trump why did he gut an LLRB? Why did he support a national right to work legislation? Why is he always critical of immigrants? Those are things. Why is it when he had his presidential economic committee? Why was it just a bunch of CEOs and no and no union leadership in there in those committees? So you want to meet with 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 this fascist? Come on now, man. I understand that you that you you know you have to entertain the thought, but at some point you have to stand on principle. And we say no, I cannot meet with with a man that has harmed the labor union and the labor movement and a, an individual that only seeks and to de, that seeks to divide the working class between color you do not you have to you have to take a principled stand at some point you can't say oh he's going to be the presidential candidate we all know he probably will be but th- but you need to take a principled stand and say no I cannot meet with them you know, you, where's the principle in that? Where's where's his principles? This is why I don't think Sean O'Brien is a principled leader. You do not take, you do not take those kind of meetings. You know, and where where is he? Where is he on 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 uh, on Gaza, on Palestine? Palestinian trade unions call for international solidarity. Didn't Sean Spain, you know, lay down his marker? Where's Sean O'Brien at? Yet you want to meet with the fascist? What's more important? Come on now, man. He's he's not principled. He's not principled. He shouldn't be leading this union. I didn't vote for him. He's our president. It is what it is. You know what I mean? I, I, he's, he's an officer for five years and maybe for maybe longer. I hope not. But once once you get in there, it's hard to get out. But you need to take a principled stand. He did not take a principled stand. He takes a photo op with with Trump, yet you you stay you stay silent on on Palestinian trade unions calling for international solidarity. You know you're not this this to me. I just I I cannot take what happened lightly. It's it, it's just a smacking in the face, especially. With some of us out here that are Mexican American that are first generation immigrants, that their parents came here with not knowing the the damn language <laughs> and trying to make a, a better living for themselves and for their children. You know? And didn't Trump just say that he wants to go after uh first generation immigrants too? And and do something with their citizenship. I mean he had, he, he he can't do it. I, some of we were born here, you know. But this is this is a man that's not even a man. This is a, 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 a an individual that just seeks to destroy the, the 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 working class, seeks to destroy trade unions. And for and for my president, general president, to meet with him, it's a smack to it's a smack in the face to all of us. You know, and don't tell me he's a reformer. Because if you're a reformer, you take a principled stand and say, no, I cannot meet with them. I understand there's a lot of teamsters that are Trumpers. I understand that. But out of sheer principle, 
we I cannot meet with him. You you, you just you just do not. All right. Well, Jose, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Joe. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing your perspective. And uh, yeah, definitely respect how you feel about that. And, yeah. and uh, I'm curious how other Teamsters feel as well. And, and I think that'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what the conversations are among members about this and, and how members feel. Yeah. Have a happy new year and uh, see you here in, here in the next week, Jose. Appreciate it. Joe in the chat in on Facebook said, uh, "Chickens uh, should meet with Colonel Sanders, but he's still going to cut your head off." <laughs> so yeah, go. yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing is like leverage. You know, do you do? You, are you getting anything um, out of it? Uh, for example, you know, UAW's approach with the Biden endorsement, I feel like, has been uh, pretty strategic in terms mm. of, hey. We recognize you have something we want, but we're not just going to give it to you right. like so many others <laughs> do, unfortunately. <clears throat> and so um, I don't know, you know, if, if if they had said, well, yeah, maybe we'll meet with you, but what are you going to do for us? Hmm. You know, and if there had been some concession, some extraction of some kind that you could point to, um, I think that would make it different. If yeah. you know easier or maybe easier to swallow if you could say right. yeah sucks to have to meet with him but we did win a b and c um as far as i can tell there's nothing like that so i understand um you know i understand jose's concerns and i imagine that's uh felt a lot by of others yeah rick smith um actually he's got rick smith um uh radio show out of pennsylvania um he uh he was very um very animated um about about this uh upset at sean o'brien uh and rick smith is is is, you know generally a pretty ecumenical kind of uh uh kind of labor guy um uh but he was uh very very harsh in his uh in his critique uh what in god's name were you thinking rick unloads on teamsters president sean o'brien for kissing trump's ring and posing for a hostage picture at mar-a-lago on the eve of the january 6th anniversary uh that was from his twitter account so yeah pretty um yeah he was pretty upset yeah yeah i i understand the open invite invitation for the round tables for every candidate i think that's reasonable um but yeah i do understand the concerns about meeting with him and and the way in which it was done and all that. Um, and I think it does speak to though a a broader, a broader problem we have as labor, which is, you know, how are we going to even relate to these elections in 2024? Mm. Um, and what I expect is, you know, well, we've already seen a lot of endorsements for Biden without any real concessions, without any real, like they're giving endorsements away, but getting nothing in return. Right. Right. Um, you know, folks can point to Biden's record and say it's objectively better for labor and for working people more broadly, and that's all true. Um, but you know, that doesn't absolve the rest of the record. Yeah, uh, especially not the concerns. With this, yeah, especially not with the the Palestine issue. No, absolutely not. Right, and so um, yeah, it's it, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be. Uh, 
one thing I, I would like to see is that our unions don't just dump a bunch of money behind mm. Joe Biden and establishment Democrats. Um, unions are our PACs, I, I should specify, but um, I just don't know that you're, what you're getting for that. Um, there, there are plenty of ways you could use your resources. Um, yeah. And I, I would just encourage folks to be strategic about it. Um, but we do have to be prepared as a movement to deal with further, uh, you know, election interference, further, uh, you know, government overthrow uh, attempts. And, and so that's something we have to deal with. I know uh, David Von Van Dusen uh, up in Vermont was having some issues with the national AFL-CIO because he mm. was really taking some leadership there from a state federation standpoint. Um you know, trying trying to be prepared, basically, for what what do you do when this right wing maniac tries to overthrow the government? Right. It's a real question, yeah. and you know, our labor movement um, does represent over ten percent of the workforce, has millions of members across the country, um, and so we should have a plan. Yeah. All right. That's going to be it for it uh, for us today, folks. We will see you next week. Uh, TVLR.fm is the website, TVLR.fm slash donate uh, to make a one-time or recurring contribution, TVLR.fm slash store to buy our merch, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, uh, and more, all at the Valley Labor yeah. Board, where you can find us online. Uh, I'll be on America's Workforce Radio on mm. Monday, so check that out for sure. Um, we were also on Status Coup News. I'm not sure if that's dropped yet. Uh, no, it hasn't. Uh, so we'll keep you all posted when that drops. Um, but yeah, looking forward to those appearances and looking forward to next week. Yep. See you then.